Hello, you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity recorded at the pod at White City Place. I'm Ellie Stuhler. Does the world really need another chair? It's a question often asked in the design world, mostly by industry journalists who have a hard time getting excited about countless new four-legged additions to furniture showrooms from Milan to Mexico City. What is far more intriguing are the experiments in how we make, not necessarily what we make. From explorations of new materials to developing circular economics, companies small and large are investing in finding new ways to create. But I think what's interesting too is you were talking about your material marmorial Mm. and that's related to terrazzo, which was originally made from marble waste. Yeah. And so, you know, we also sometimes we can think back to what were practices to vernacular and historic practices when actually the economy was pretty much circular. Let's meet our two conversationalists. I'm Jane Withers. I'm a design curator and consultant, and I have a small company, Jane Withers Studio. We work with both commercial and cultural clients. My name's Brent Chikoris. I'm the founder and director of Jack, which is a design production company that focuses on uh, developing architectural materials with contemporary designers. Brent Chikoris is a former director of Johnson Trading Gallery and Moss Gallery, and now runs Jack, a company that creates original architectural materials and products in collaboration with designers. He's worked with esteemed young makers such as Max Lamb and the Italian-born duo behind Forma Fantasma. Max Lamb's terrazzo, developed with Jack, can be found in the Leila Hotel in Waikiki and Maison Kitsune in Paris. Jane Withers is a design consultant, curator, and writer. For this year's Salone del Mobile, she co-curated a show for Danish textile brand Quadrat called Really, which saw seven international designers create products from materials produced in part from Quadrat waste. Jane also was instrumental in developing the Brompton Design District for London Design Festival and continues to curate elements of the event. Well, at Salone in Milan, we had the second episode of Really's exhibition, Circular by Design. Really is a new company, it was or initiative, it was started five years ago to look at um, making new materials for the design industry from textile waste. And I think probably about three years ago, Quadrat, the Danish textile company, became a major investor. The Salone we really use as a platform to introduce the material to show how designers can use it and their explorations with it. And as much as that, also to engage a very informed audience with the story of the material because really it has at the moment two products, solid textile board and acoustic textile felt. And these are both made from ground-up laundry that's shredded and then produced into, on one hand for the acoustic felt, a mat, and then that's a felt-like mat, and then that's pressed into a sheet material. So it's a little bit like wood, but it's actually made out of -of end-of-life textiles. In Milan this year, we invited seven designers to produce furniture or products with the material, and they're very, very different. 
Christine Meindersma, who's a wonderful Dutch designer, has taken the acoustic textile felt and made what look a bit like sort of Grassini breadsticks from it. And they have a magnetic tip and they can be stuck to a magnetic paper on the wall and they grow into a sort of shaggy wallpaper that has very good sound absorbent properties. You've now worked with nine designers or commissioned nine designers Mm -hmm. to work specifically with the material to illustrate what can be done. And I'm wondering how those designers like respond to working with a material that is, I imagine, really are trying to position this or give context so that other designers or architects, people will see it as a a traditional building material that Mm -hmm. you can make things with. And so how do designers react to working with this material? I think it's been quite interesting because we've chosen, uh, they've really engaged with the material and spent a lot of time experimenting with it because when you first encounter it, it's not like quite like anything else. It performs slightly differently. So they really do dig into it. I mean, I remember asking Max Lamb and he said, what do you do first? He said, lick it. And then he spent <laughs> ages. You know, we showed a library of it in Milan last year in the first exhibition, a library of his, you know, quite fascinating experiments with the material where he really had sort of hacked it away, made layers, attempted to bend it, you know, really explored its limits, although it's actually, you know, in some ways it's quite a simple material and its potentials or straightforward sheet material. And I think similarly, this time round, we've had people almost score into it and make channels so that it can be locked, two two sheets can be locked together and bent using quite complex computer programs to work out how you make the radiant and so on. (laughs) Elsewhere, you know, raw edges are digging into the surface. Joe Nagasaka is adding colour and looking at how how it absorbs colour. It's almost like a little bit like marbling or something or, mm. you know, pressing pigment into the surface and getting very rich effects. So they've taken very individual approaches. Yeah, it's quite porous, isn't it? As a Yeah, it's quite absorbent in, in that way. And because of its sort of flecked surfaces, different bits absorb colour in different ways. So you get a sort of richly textured colored surface. I unfortunately didn't get to make it to see the exhibition in person. So I'm just working off the the images. But I did see the launch two years ago mm. with Max Lamb. And I couldn't think of a, a better designer to, to give a new material over to. I mean, his curiosity is limitless. And um, he certainly set a good precedent for the next people to start looking mm. at what what to do. So, I mean, it's great foundation and, and you're working with uh, amazing people. The Raw Edges project in particular, for me, looking at those images, it recalled uh, wood in a way, like, a, I mean, a bit cartoonish, sort of uh, the beginnings of a, a wood paneling or wood, uh, uh, like the wood grain, slightly oversized. I like the reference to a traditional material in the work. So, I mean, Mm. it does conjure that up for me Mm. and also maybe subconsciously communicates that to the viewer that this is a very, can be utilized in a very traditional manner, even though the work is, is obviously quite experimental. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. There's a sort of almost cartoonish level of, wo- of a wood grain when, yeah. you, when you, as you pointed out. 
and it gives it a sort of familiarity and patterning that plays on a material actually with quite different structure. Yeah, because synthetic, I mean, I think, I think we all struggle with synthetics. We look at them and they're so abstract, we don't know how to position them in our, we're, we're organic, mm. we look at organic materials and organic matter and we, we can assimilate that very easily. But when we we look at something that's synthetic, we don't know how to position it. And yeah, I think that's partly true. I guess that, you know, it's, but this does have a, I mean, is it synthetic in a way? It's debatable because its original material is laundry. So it's made out of one of the problems of the circular economy or one of the challenges of it is finding a good supply of the waste material, a consistent supply that's scalable. And this uses old laundry. So really has made a an agreement with laundries to collect their used sheets, uniforms, all the different sort of white laundries, and that's their supply. Yeah. And I think you do, once you know that, you can feel that it's a cotton. Next, they'll be looking at what you can do with synthetic textiles. In my own work, I think about, because, I mean, we're always... We don't have much out there in the world, but it's because the product development time is so lengthy. And once you become aware of circular economy and the implications, when we started our first product line, I mean, that wasn't a thought at all. Sustainability wasn't really an issue because we were also working with Max Lem. Mm. And Max and I have had these conversations just, I mean, just even about his, you know, his polystyrene series, Mm. for example, and the value in those pieces, those objects, those one-offs, those kind of series, they're collectible. They go to somebody who understands a practice, uh, a life of a designer, Mm -hmm. and they understand the intention of that work and they keep it, they cherish it, and it becomes an heirloom. And Mm. I think... When we started developing Marmorial and then the products that were conceived from that and the furnishings and so forth, not just the material itself, it was thought of in the same manner, Mm, mm -hmm. although the scale of that is very different. So as an architectural surface, there is a life to those things in a building. There is a life to those things in 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 a public application. And I don't know that we thought about those things. And so now approaching new materials with other designers, you become very much more conscious of the impact. Hmm. And I think as a result, it slows things down incredibly because with a circular economy, you're not just thinking about the product as you are in a linear economy, right? It's a straight Mm -hmm. line Mm -hmm. and end of life. Are there any support systems out there to help people along the path of developing products within or a system for a circular economy for products because I see like there's the Ellen MacArthur Foundation mm. I know Finland as a government has has done like the largest initiative in circular economy right yeah. right supporting yeah. yeah but what what's out there for for businesses or well I guess designers? the RSA the great recovery began a few years ago and they've pioneered you know looking at it from a designer's perspective what the brief could be you know essentially the briefs need to be rewritten as you're saying you're not saying 
designer table that will cost so and so. You're saying designer table that at the end of it, you know, preferably should be as enduring as possible. So, you know, what you're talking about is heirlooms and things that are valued. That's the kind of first step. And, you know, ideally things will just be used for as long as possible. But when the, that end of life does come, how can they be taken apart, reclaimed, and importantly, reclaimed in the, in the way that the material has uh, retains its value or is even upcycled. So you've got mm. old sheets to perhaps office systems, perhaps tables or furniture, or giving waste of value. Mm. And it's very important that materials are upcycled rather than just recycled. Mm. So yeah, the whole approach needs to change. And I think people are trying to, I mean, a lot of companies do have serious initiatives going on but it is harder for the smaller designers probably but yeah. in the um the uh, milan salone issued a kind of manifesto this year where they said that the design industry should embrace sustainability more wholeheartedly and the circular economy that's their first manifesto in the history <laughs> of the salone by the yeah, way yeah yeah it's it's you know it's interesting i mean it it's clarity very... and purpose and direction rather than become a yeah I mean, I guess this is more of a philosophical question because we are in the business or I'm in the business and you support the business of making product. Mm. Is the bigger issue in, in our consumerist culture and how we, how we have this need or we are validated by having the – and we're not working in, this, in the electronics world where this mm -hmm. is so rapid mm – -hmm. But where we have to have the latest pair of shoes or the latest, um, the latest iPhone to be validated, hmm. and is there a way to to change the thinking of consumers um, to change well, the way they so. value? Yes, the, I, I, the way they I, value I things. think so. You know, there is some evidence that slowly that's beginning to happen. But you know, the textile problem is largely down to, well fast fashion and so on it's growing exponentially mm. globally our use of textiles or our consumption of them at an astonishing rate i think that between 2008 and 2020 more or less doubles globally or something's one wow. prediction so you know we're making this stuff that we've got to understand how to remake so you know, there are signs. I mean, on the tube on the way here, I saw a ad, a billboard ad for a app called Regain, and it's for taking back certain brands of clothing, and it's saying your overcoat can now have a value. So I think you know there are signs that it's happening, but it's also at a very you know at a very small fringe compared to the consumer. I mean, I think one of the interesting things where the circular economy in the beginning was heralded because as thinking it in la it didn't it meant that the consumer didn't really have to change; they could keep consuming. And I think it's very important you actually understand that behaviour has to change as well. We have to cherish things, and you know. So with something like really, it's it's about the product but it's also about conveying the narrative and we always talk you know had a section of the exhibition about how the materials made and how about how it can be remade and introducing the circular economy because mm. you have to you know that's very much a part of the story and why you fall in love with it is the memory of textiles yeah in terms of upcycling and enhancing the value of something i think it's extremely successful in that 
parts. Um, it's nice. a very nice yeah. part. Uh, but you know, the 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 interesting thing will be its next stages, how it gets out in the world, how it's used, yeah. and you know, we can say it's circular ready, but you know. We still need the take-back systems yeah. to be able to take furniture. You know, how as a consumer do I give back that table to get it remade? And that's you know a challenge the industry faces. And they already have a system of reusing end-of-life product. Yes, it yeah. can be um, ground down again and reformed into the same board so it retains its value. So that's the interesting thing. But has to you know the, the industry has to work out how to. How to do this yeah, and make it, will, it easy. Yeah, it will obviously be easier probably you know, on a contract level Yeah, where things can be reclaimed in quantities. But like the Regain app I just saw, you have to give things a value, a bit like deposit systems on bottles or... You know, or informal recycling in India or something, you find that the aluminium and the things of value can be scavenged, reclaimed, and it's in reasonably efficient systems, but something like plastic waste that doesn't have a value for collection, just as we know, is just polluting the landscape and the oceans. You're listening to Thought Starters, recorded at the pod at White City Place. In conversation are Brent Jacoris and Jane Withers. That just brings me to thinking about how, do you see Form of Phantasmas or Streams project that they did at the NGV? No, did I, you I, read I, about I read about it. it yeah, I mean, I didn't see it, see it yeah, but I yeah, read yeah, about it yeah. as well. And it kind of touches on this point where these electronic waste streams contain so many precious minerals and eventually, I forget what the year, target year is, there will be more precious minerals on the surface of the planet than in the planet itself. And that will just be yeah. scavenging yeah. to yeah, find yeah. and source all these yeah. minerals that are on the surface of the planet already yeah. existing in product. Yeah, I guess that's the sort of core idea of the Anthropocene age, that we've actually, we're altering archaeology and the structure of the earth. And I read a rather depressing thing the other day that from human civilization, what will be our greatest legacy? Waste. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than that, you know. But I guess exactly what you're saying needs to happen. You need to think of landfills not as a waste tip, but as a, potentially as a mine for resources, much as you might have a copper mine or a marble quarry or something. Yeah, in- indeed. Um, but it's the sorting, the capturing, all those things that need to be. Absolutely. Um, I think I'm just curious what I think education is obviously a huge part of this and yeah. how we create a consciousness around this. Obviously, it's very topical and sustainability is a word that is widely used, overused. But in reality, how is really, because it's such an integral part of the system, is having this awareness of the consumer. Is there a, an education program besides the exhibition program that you, you've implemented with them is that well there's a certain amount of talks i mean we have to remember it's it really is a kind of start up at the beginning yeah. of its life but we try and in every communication make that part of the story it's like on the front of this brochure is why shouldn't what we consider end of life be the start of a new life now that's kind of relatively unusual thing to find on a furniture 
yeah, brochure. High, so, you know, we're trying and we're looking for ways to do that. And obviously there's a lot of CPD you know, with architects and designers yeah, yeah. and getting out there and talking about it. But, yeah, it's, it takes a lot of energy and resource to, to run those programs as one should. But I think really are trying to take every opportunity they can. To It'd be a great CPD. I would attend that one. I think about Patagonia. Yes. A lot. I mean, first of all, I'm a huge fan of the brand and yeah. loyal supporter. And, a, and the reason for that is because they do such a fantastic job of communicating their values, their mm, mission, mm-hmm, mm. and how they go about combating environmental issues. Yeah, and they've already been going and doing it for right. Exactly, you know, they have a very. They've really walked a legacy. The talk, or yeah. Um, so it's very consistent, but it's interesting because it's made it entirely aspirational rather than uh, you know it's turned the story in some, into something you want to join. You want to join, and um, it is a lifestyle, mm, but it is it's a sort of a given that it's there. Yeah. No, I mean they remain one of the leading example. I'm trying to think. I read my pe- Let My People Go Surfing by Yvonne Schoenard, and that was very inspiring to read. I mean, how he started, how his personal experience with mm. the environment informed his business practices and it, within his business. I mean, he just so considerate and so sensitive to his surroundings. Mm. And you can build a following through that. You can build so much through um, that. And it's because the narrative has always been consistent and part of it. But it, it, it is fascinating that, you know, in the plastic pollution, particularly marine plastic issues, it's been surfers, yachtsmen, Ellen MacArthur, you know, who are leading because they first encountered, you know, tangible, I imagine, pretty much a horror of finding the amount of plastic in the oceans. Yeah, you're in this beautiful sea on a surfboard and surrounded yeah. by plastic bottles. Yeah. It's kind of uh, quite a very visceral re- experience and how, you know, and even then at the moment with the changing awareness of plastic pollution, you know, every day there's pictures, but it's still not the same as seeing a beach or, you know, yeah. scuffing your toe on. I was speaking with a colleague the other day about the enzyme, the plastic eating en- enzyme, mm, and mm. she said to me, that article surfaces like every six months. Yes, um, I read it. Yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. know if that's true or not. Well, I think similar ones before I've read about. It. I have to. It, this does seem to have be a shift, but I think in no way can we rely on it. We need to rethink how we. You know, we don't know the effects of it environmentally or its scalability or very little about it. So I think we still have to look at changing attitudes to plastic, reducing, using it for the sort of extraordinary material it is, but not single life disposable stuff. Um, And I think it's quite important that people continue on that focus at the moment when the message is getting out there rather than get distracted by too many possible silver bullets. Uh, Is the ban a silver bullet? In a way, like, I mean, the plastic bag ban, the single-use plastic bag, bag ban or the 5P charge here has significantly contributed to a reduction, Yes, absolutely, it? but we need to and take the, it across other areas too. Yes, yeah. it, it is a significant change, but, you know, we've still got plastic bottles everywhere. Yeah. And they're hard to avoid until there are alternatives, systems, different ways of thinking about, you know, behavior change, but... Value, valuing waste, essentially. So Yeah, but also just, you know, I'm sort of constantly amazed when you think about the plastic bottle is that 
um, man has always been thirsty and there's been all sorts of, you know, a whole rich language around water and drinking water culture and terracotta, all sorts of materials and Fatimid rulers that would only drink from rock crystal and so on. Yeah. And we've got lumbered with the plastic bottle. It and, is. You know, it's only since, what, invented in 73, ubiquitous since the 80s. But we've, you know, we've been sold it by a very powerful marketing machine and the tools to combat need to be as strong as that. Or stronger. Stronger, yeah, right? I mean, I remember very clearly, I grew up in the late 70s and throughout the 80s, and just looking at people drinking bottled water and thinking, that is a laugh. I grew up in upstate New York in a mm. suburb. The notion of buying, paying for water mm. felt completely absurd. And I remember in Spaceballs, in the movie Spaceballs, Mel Brooks did this parody with yeah. air, remember Perrier, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and he opens the can of air, yeah, yeah. and, and it, that was equally absurd. Yeah, I think it was yeah. a comment on how ridiculous it is that we're buy people pay for yeah why? luxury water or yeah and why do we why do we have more confidence in that commercial product than we do in the utilities and the water that comes out of the tap? And I mean, in New York, it's particularly mad because a New York tap water or a large amount is effectively Catskill spring water yeah. piped into your home. I miss yeah. it, I have to say. Yeah, it can be delicious. But, you know, New York such famously a, has the yeah. best tap water. Yeah, and yet, you know, that hasn't stopped the bottled industry taking hold. Yeah, it is absolutely um, bizarre. But, you know, now we know that plastic leaches into the bottle and the bottled water has been found to have plastic in it too. Will that change? Yeah. The no PBA thing, that's the main issue in terms of what we ingest, right, mm -hmm. PBAs. Mm -hmm. Are all these plastic bottles sitting on this table here, do they have PBAs? Probably. Yeah, yeah. No, it's <laughs> we have four. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the idea that plastic is in the food we eat, the water we drink, and our bodies is something quite hard to get our heads around. Yeah. Obviously, designers are our best problem solvers and um, our most curious citizens, mm, in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, besides the scientists. Mm. And I think the work that you're doing in engaging these designers to give context to the value of using upcycled materials to create new products and to give a, a new perception of the value of waste mm, mm -hmm. and the waste that we're responsible for is is really important work I'm, i mean i'm personally trying to, to shift make that shift within my own mm, business mm -hmm. and i find it really difficult work but urgent mm. but i think what's interesting too is you were talking about your material marmorial mm. and that's related to terrazzo which was originally made from marble waste yeah and so yeah. you know we also sometimes we can think back to what were practices you know to vernacular and historic practices when actually the economy was pretty much circular and things were reused and given value or decomposed and so on and I think that's a really, you know, yes, you need to make new materials, but what else is there that, that designers can use that's already in existence but perhaps haven't been thought of for a while? Yeah. Because it's not a kind of obviously 
glamorous, sexy new material or something. Um, but, you know, how can they give that value? I think designers now are looking at things like biomimicry much more closely because nature has often presented the best solutions mm. to the problems that we're, we're facing. And designers have uh, the best understanding of how to harness those solutions. Mm. Yes, and the work with algae and so on in that area. But I guess that one of the the biggest challenges is this scalability and how you get industry to accept the material and to in, take it from designers' experiments into an industrialized and distributed product. Mm, that is my conundrum <laughs> every day. Yeah. I have a massive list of designers and material projects that yeah. they've initiated, self-initiated, yeah. either as students or, or yeah. you know, post-grad. And they're fantastic projects yeah, that absolutely. deserve a life, but they need to have an entire system redesigned mm. to fit that, mm. new, mm -hmm. that new product. I can think of three really outstanding people. One of them was was brought into Ikea to speak about her project and they brought her over a few times. I don't know what the conclusion was at the end of it all mm. because they have the resource they have, but I think mm. they were working with coconut fibers and they didn't see a reason to change their mm. supply mm. because up the cost of uprooting existing supply chains. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm not, Ikea is a fantastic company, so mm. I'm not... sure. But it, it yeah, shows but it just you know, shows. the industry is conservative in that way. Very. And I think that's where consumer awareness will, you know, and it will drive change too. I think that, you know, the plastic bottle, we've all known about marine plastic pollution to an extent. And then you need people to say, that's enough. I'm not going to use it. I'm exactly. Gonna. They have to demand it. Yeah. But it's, you know, but there are so, but even that, I mean, yes, the investment in changing systems and production processes and so on is huge, but it's also legislation and getting the necessary certifications and so on. And that's another massive investment. Massive. That was Brent DeCorris and Jane Withers. This has been Thought Starters, recorded the pod at White City Place. Thought Starters is a Dienico project for White City Place, produced by David Michon, recorded and edited by Claire Urban. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, find us at whitecityplace.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at White City Place. And subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes, Acast, and Stitcher. Give us a rating and write us a comment. It really helps. We'll see you next time.